0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. History isn't just the list of dates we learn in school or the objects that we see in museums. According to public historian Greg Jenner, it completely surrounds us in our day-to-day lives. And in his new book, You Are History, Greg explores this idea, covering daily life in the past, from the delightful to the downright deadly. As consultant to the children's TV show Horrible Histories and the host of the popular BBC podcast, You're Dead to Me, Greg has plenty of experience of making history both daft and enjoyable. And so David Musgrove began by asking him a seemingly obvious question, how exactly do you get children interested in the past?
3: Well, I'm not the font of all knowledge. I'm not an expert in this. There are many ways. The, the way that I tend to work, obviously, is I use humour. I try and write in the either the first person or the second person. So either I write about me and I say I or I I'll say you to try and generalise to, to the reader. Um, jokes, humour, pop cultural references are all helpful because they can make the unfamiliar familiar because you can use... Analogy, You know, if you're doing jokes about something, often it's analogous. Often you're setting up a comparison or a simile. You know, someone's a bit like this. And we did that a lot in Horrible Histories. You know, we did a, uh, a Cleopatra song where we made it pretty overt that Cleopatra and Lady Gaga have a lot in common. You know, these these sort of extraordinary women who are fashion icons, whose boyfriends would die in their music videos slash uh, in real life. And so it's sometimes it's quite helpful to just find a hook that you can hang something on because it then feels less scary and intimidating and you can then deliver the information, which is the new thing, in a packaging that is comfortable. So, you know, whether that's a MasterChef parody or you're doing a, um, a YouTube makeover show or a TikTok parody or you're doing something, you know, what it's like to be on Insta when you're 10 years old or whatever. It's it's all these sort of um, familiar things that suddenly feel safe. And then once they're safe, then children can laugh and enjoy them. And then your information is sort of not having to battle. It's it's sort of gliding into the brain quite easily. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of that on Horrible Histories. Uh, and I've sort of taken that into my podcasting, into my books, is trying to find a, a, kind of a way to make it feel like it's relevant and it's accessible and it's familiar. Um, because the information, of course, is going to be the opposite, the information is new and sometimes it's bewilderingly new it's, you know, civilizations you've never heard of, societies from the other side of the planet you know, uh, people living thousands of years ago um, so totally new, which means you need to have some way in and sometimes that's as simple as saying, you know your older brother smells, you know, and and you know, toilets are embarrassing and sometimes it's, you know, a bit more sophisticated than that and, and talking about you know, what it is that we do in our daily life or what we do you know, in our in our year as we get older and grow up, so I'm always just looking for something that feels like an anchor point that you can you can sort of hang, you know, you can stick your uh, what do they call cool when you climb a mountain the little crampons or whatever you stick them in the wall and then you sort of hang on. That's what I'm looking for.
4: I think that's an ice axe. I think your crampon is attached to your foot. Thank you. I See, think that would be a mistake. Well,
3: this is why <laughs> I need an expert to help me on that. Ice axe will do. Thank you. <laughs>
4: um, but I, I guess you can only take that familiarity so far, is it because, as, as we famously know, the, the past is a foreign country, right?
3: They do things differently there. Yeah. They do. And that is the the joy of, of horrible histories, of you're dead to me. Um, the thing I enjoy so much about them is they function on a um, on a sort of parallel uh, oxymoronic kind of like two-way track of on the one hand you're pushing the this is unfamiliar, this is foreign, this is weird, this is alien and that's where you get your laughs and on the other track you're going the other way and you're stressing these are people like us they had problems too. They had the same experiences. Probably they had the same pressures. They had the same biology. You know, so if we're talking about the history of toilets or medicine or healthcare, you can say, yeah, look, everyone, whether you know, it doesn't matter where they're born or what era they're born into. Everyone gets hungry. Everyone gets tired and sleepy. Everyone needs to, you know, go to the toilet. And um, so you can actually play on these two separate <laughs> musical instruments uh, during the course of an episode or in writing a book. You can stress. People in the past were weird. They did this weird stuff. You won't believe what they did when the bubonic plague came. And then at the same time, you can say, but actually, we've all experienced something very scary recently in terms of, you know, devastating pandemics. And and we knew what it was like to be scared and to be terrified. And you try anything to stay safe. So actually, the past being a foreign country is half of the battle. The other half is actually then twisting it and making history feel uh, like a human experience.
4: Cool. Right, so we talked quite a lot about your previous work. Let's talk a little bit about the the new book that you've done, You Are History. We've got a copy here. It's a a fascinating... uh, It's a a really lovely book. It's really beautifully illustrated. Yeah, it's
3: lovely, yeah. Um,
4: Who who did the illustrations Jenny
3: Taylor. Jenny's a fantastic illustrator who was tasked with the almost impossible job of doing 300 uh, sort of illustrations. Basically, it's 144 pages. There's like four different images on every page. It's so much colour and art, and all of it had to be historically accurate, of course. All the costumes, all the settings... Everything's. I guess
4: you were checking that way.
3: Yeah, and poor Jenny we get emails from my editors saying Greg says the hats are wrong. <laughs> so, um, so she did an amazing job, and yeah, it's it's beautifully. Produced, I'm so proud of it. I'm so you know it's so lovely when the book shows up and you go, "Oh wow, it looks great." Yeah, it's 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 absolutely
4: handsome and and, and as I said, very pictorial. I guess the pictorial element was was important to you. Yeah. What's, wh- who is this for? What's the age range? Of well, it?
3: probably sort of seven to twelve, but that's an enormous range. I mean, you meet a seven-year-old, you meet a twelve-year-old. They haven't got a huge amount in common these days. But the hope is that a young child of six, seven is going to pick it up and enjoy the the vibrancy of the, of the jokes, the cartoons, the images. They'll feel, you know, safe enough to sort of flick through some pages. But actually, in terms of content, I, I'd hope that there are people, you know, in the early teens who are going to pick it up and go, oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And actually, I've had a lot of adults pick it up and go, I didn't know that either. So it's for children. But actually, um, I don't dumb it down, I'm not trying to patronise the idea is to try and pitch it somewhere safely in the middle so that anyone can get something from it but you're not leaving the kids behind
4: Okay, So do the elevator pitch, what is it, what's the concept?
3: (laughs) It's called You Are History and it's 50 objects that a child will use every day on an average school day, assuming they go to school, not all children do And uh, it's just a sort of day in the life. So it's the same idea as my first book, which was called A Million Years in a Day. That was for adults. This is the same thing, but this is through objects rather than uh, themes. So you start in the morning, you wake up in bed, it's the history of, you know, beds and alarm clocks, popping on your underpants, going to the loo, having a shower. It's all of the things you will do that day and the history of them. And those histories are often global uh, because so much of what uh, we have to do, I guess, as historians these days, is we have to make sure that people are understanding global history is important. We are interconnected. We can't just keep banging on about the Tudors all the time. We have to make sure that young people growing up are aware of the way in which the world has been shaped by all these enormous forces, by the, the movement of peoples, by trade and empire and colonialism and all these sort of big factors. Um, but also the small things, the little things, you know, the history of toothbrushes and... and um, toilet paper and money and uh, forks and spoons, you know, this stuff that is boring and irrelevant, and you you don't look at it twice. But actually, they're really interesting when you do look at them twice.
4: Yeah. So and that leads us into a a thing we were just talking about before we started the interview about how far sort of your your work travels globally. So obviously, you're British, there's a lot of British stuff in here, but it's not it's not exclusively a a British history book in any way. No, not at
3: all. It's, um, you know, this is a book that I wanted to make sure felt like it was universal and, and international, regardless of who's reading it. It's going to feel quite British because of my sense of humor. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, I'm looking at there are stories in there from Korea and, and um, sort of Africa, Egypt, uh, the Aztecs, um Japan, China, uh, you know, a bit of Germany, Renaissance Italy, uh, the Inca, you know, obviously British history, Irish history, American, Canadian, it's it's a sort of all over the place, India, South Asia. It's, you know, you can't really do a British history anymore because actually our history is global history um, and and always has been. You know, we are all part of a big interconnected world and we know this for, you know, historians have been working on this for a long time, but actually... It's not like, you know, we were all sort of sat in our little bunkers uh, and then suddenly the world opened up to us. You know, it's been globalized for a long, long time. And so it's really important to do a book that is, uh, I think, hopefully pointing out that the stuff that's in your kitchen cupboard or in your fridge or the stuff in your lounge at home or the things you might wear to school, they've come from somewhere and often they haven't come from the the sort of the history of your own nation, they maybe come from a a different part of the world. And that's exciting and and fascinating and and surprising, I think. And, um, you know, that's not the sort of history I grew up with when I was a kid. And so I thought it'd be quite nice to try and find that way in. And also, so many children growing up in the UK now have a family story that perhaps starts somewhere else or, or, or shared. You know, I did. I'm half French. So growing up as a kid, I wanted to know about my family's history. And um, I think it's just nice to be able to say to any child in the UK, pick up this book and you'll find something in there that probably resonates for you. And it doesn't matter where your parents or grandparents might be from, chances are there's something in there that that's going to resonate. That's the hope.
4: Yeah, yeah. So it goes back to that familiarity um, thing you were talking about to start. Now, I suppose... Um, when we're talking about children and, and, and adults I'm sure, the things that, that they are most interested in are things that they can relate to. Yeah. Um so uh, you know, if you go to, to a Roman villa, if you go to Chedworth Roman Villa, people always stop at the at the toilets bit at the of start course. where you can where there's the little <laughs> sign saying they use the sponge and stuff. I mean, those those are the things that you remember, right? And yeah. that's kind of you know, your, your book isn't just about bodily functions, but... Oh, um, it, know, there's it, plenty of bodily that, functions, that, that's, yeah. That's what works for people,
3: right? It's fascinating, though. I mean, that's the human element. Is that we all have to go to the toilet. There have been 108 billion people by the sort of best account, and every single one of them needed a poo. At some point, it's just a human necessity. Um, and until the robots come and replace us, that's forever the case. Toilets will be essential. And when you look at the history of, you know... Um, the, the Indus civilization of, of South Asia in the Bronze Age thousands of years ago, they had to get their toilets in order. That's, you know, that's the first thing that happens when you build a big city. You've got to have sanitation infrastructure. So the Romans, the the, the Indus in ancient China, or you're looking at, you know, what the Tudors were trying to do. You look at Jet in London in the 19th century, the building of sewers and toilets and facilities is really interesting because it gets into all sorts of questions about hygiene and sanitation, but also about gender and class. You know, do who are you pooing next to? Are you pooing next to someone of the same gender as you? Are they the same age as you? Are they the same class as you? Is there a cubicle between you? No, you're a stranger. Okay, but you're going you're gonna to share this experience with them. Are you in the dark or are you lit and illuminated? What's on the walls behind you? All these little things can tell you quite a lot about society. And um, I think toilets are fascinating for that. And, of course, being British, we're quite coy about toilets. We're quite embarrassed by them, which is why the laughter comes, because we're all a bit like, ooh, but children find it hilarious. So lean into it, you know, go with it. But actually, once you've done your obvious poo joke, then there's all this interesting stuff about what toilets can tell us about a society.
4: And I'm I'm sort of, I hope that you're a, the sort of chap who is regularly <laughs> inundated by questions from children who have listened All to you time. or, or yeah. watched your programmes, read, read your books and stuff. Um, are most the questions that you get about bodily functions or <laughs> what, 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 what are the, the sort of the main themes that you get from children? Well, my, my,
3: the other book here that's sort of very quickly, I'll sort of show off, it's called Ask a Historian, which is mostly for grown-ups or teenagers up, but that's exactly it. The, the book is based on questions I get from the public. And children often ask me brilliantly specific questions. Um, sometimes I can't answer them because they're too hard. Uh, someone asked me, was Jesus sad about all the dinosaurs dying out? And I was like, I, great question, don't know. Ask the Pope <laughs> uh, beyond my expertise. Um, but often often children are intrigued by the, the yucky and the gory and the, and the small things. But then sometimes they ask really... Really good questions. So I did Cheltenham Book Fair quite recently, the festival there. Had a really lovely time. It was my first time talking about the book and I was a bit nervous. And I sort of did the talk and at the end there was 10 minutes spare and I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll ask, ask the audience if they've got anything they want to ask. And um, the microphone was working fine, but they um, they didn't have microphones for people in the audience. So I couldn't hear the questions from the kids. So I came down off the stage I had a head mic on, and I was able to go and see them up close and say, "Hey, how are you?" and and, and you know, get up close. And when you get up close, to them, suddenly they, all their faces went. Oh, this guy's come to have a chat. Let's let's fire all the questions we can think of. And from like sort of two, sort of tentative hands in the air, suddenly there was just hundreds and hundreds of hands up because they realised that, I guess, I was interested in hearing from them. And I was going to take it seriously, and I wasn't going to just sort of uh, palm them off with a, a sort of pat answer. I was going to try and do my best. And suddenly they wanted to know everything. And it was great. And it really it really sort of startled me slightly, but actually then quite excited, that, you know, the idea that, yeah, there is this passion and enthusiasm, but sometimes there's a little bit of distance between the historian on the stage far away, um, and there you are sat in the audience. And so they wanted to know about the history of red hair. You know, there was a, a young boy with red hair who said, you know... Were people with red hair mocked in medieval times, or was it was it exciting to have red hair? And I was like, "That's a great question." So, children have all they've got all manner of questions they want to ask, as do grown ups. So often, I get asked about the history of menstrual hygiene by by um, predominantly women. Um, that feels then perhaps as a an interesting thing. Perhaps that's something that's not well talked about very often, and perhaps it's more so these days. But I think. Um, cleanliness, hygiene, washing, shampooing, brushing your teeth. These are the things that come up over and over and over whenever I asked asked people about their questions. And then obviously things like, is Downton Abbey accurate? I saw a movie, it said this, did that happen? Those sort of engagements with popular culture and, and dramatic storytelling or historical novels or video games. People want to know is the crown accurate? Did you know? Did Diana really say that? That sort of thing also really comes up a lot. So I, I guess there's quite a lot of variety, but certainly young people seem they seem particularly interested in bodily functions and in uh, and in sort of etiquette and manners and decency and w- what they do with their bodies and what they wear and that sort of stuff seems particularly important to them. They don't ask about Weimar Germany or you know uh, they ask who's your favorite king. And I always say well, it depends what you mean because Henry the Seventh was the best king, but he was a monster. Um, so uh, that's always interesting. Uh, they always sort of ask, you know, they, they're kind of a sort of top Trump style, like you know, who would win in a battle between Henry the Eighth and uh, Edward the Fourth? You sort of go, that's a good question. I don't know, <laughs> but I think the ordinary is actually quite fascinating
4: what was the answer to the red hair question
3: well so i didn't i had to be quite careful because obviously the answer is quite saucy quite rude but th- there was a belief in, in uh, european medi- medieval uh, health and hygiene that red hair might be a byproduct of uh, of people having sex during menstruation and it could therefore be a bit of a problem so i had to be quite cautious in answering that that was at the hay festival so that was uh, i think that was filmed so my answer <laughs> does exist somewhere but um yeah, there is this sort of sense that I think you're, that people go around with questions that they'd like to ask. And so the book, Ask a Historian, you know, which it came out uh, in the pandemic and is just out on paper. But now that's me trying to tackle 50 of the most interesting ones. And I got 650, I think, that came in. And yeah, there is some bodily function, you know, the, the Bayer Tapestry. I know you've written a book on that. People wanted to know about the penises. Uh, People why,
4: always want to know about the they penises. Want
3: about the penises. Um, they want to know about the penises. They want to know about how did knights poo in their armour. That is a... It's a basic question, isn't it? And yeah, on the one hand, you kind of go, gross. On the other hand, you go, yeah, but how do you poo in your armour? <laughs> do you just go and, and get someone else to clean it up? Or do you try and squat? So that, I think... You know, coming from horrible histories, bodily function, and scatology humor is always going to be something that I am comfortable talking about. And I think there'll be there'll be people listening thinking oh, he's a bit he's a bit childish, but I tend to I tend to find it's quite a good way to open people up to thinking about their bodies and the history of bodies and how important it is. If you think about the most, you know, uh, I did a podcast on the history of ancient medicine, and our our expert. Um, made a really interesting point. And she said that bad health was the norm in ancient Roman Greece. Good health was a rare thing. Because of the lack of antibiotics, because of the lack of modern medicine and so on, most people were in pain most of the time from something. A broken leg that never healed properly, an ear infection, an eye infection. You know, there's always something. And suddenly you then look again at Julius Caesar's bust and you look again at Cicero or you look again at some of the sort of greats, Plato and Socrates, and think they probably had a rash. They probably had a headache. They chances are their teeth hurt, and it sort of changes your understanding of them as these great people, as these sort of you know titans of history. You suddenly realise actually they they probably went to bed in, in some discomfort and woke up in the morning going, oh here we go, and it really it changes your understanding. I think to to try and push the the, the human element back in. So when people ask me about body stuff and and scatology and whatever I, I like that because it's you can make a joke and it's great but then you can start to talk about yeah actually where did you go to the toilet and how comfortable was it how safe were you and how often did you go um you know, what were you eating? What was your diet like? Were you getting enough vitamins? So were you constipated and in and, and discomfort or the opposite problem? Did, you know, did you have the runs for what color was your wee? You know, because, you know, sometimes people would be uh, diagnosticating through urine color. And so I think it's quite interesting to use the, the yucky and the gory and the icky um, to then ask the bigger questions.
4: Um, and before we move on from that, I, uh, I can't leave that one hanging. How, how do you go to the toilet in armour? What's the, what's, the, <laughs> what's the line there?
3: Well, I think it depends on the armour. And mm. if you, I mean, I'm not a, um, you know, if you talk to a proper armour specialist, they'll tell you obviously armour differs at different times in history. But I think if you were sort of in a, in a full, fully encased sort of 15th century style suit, I imagine it's quite difficult. And I reckon you probably have to take a, a couple of bits off and squat down and you might need a squire. But I think in... Twelfth or thirteenth century armor, where you've it's a bit more sort of um, some plate, but then some mail, some you know straps, sort of hanging certain bits on. I think you might be able to adjust and lift and, and hoik and you know take out what you need to take out. So it depends on the century, probably. But if you talk to a proper expert, and they'll give you a proper answer, I'm sure.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: So that constant churn of ideas, of new interpretations, of new approaches is fundamental to what historians do. That is what history is. History is a verb. It's a doing word. The past is what happened. History is the story of how we understand it. And they are unrelated in that sense. They're completely related in terms of what they are. They're both interested in the past, but history is something that's done now.
2: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride.
4: So, so when you get all these questions and you answer them, are there any answers that, um, that tend to uh, have uh, elicit wide-eyed surprise from children? Are there anything that, that can't be right?
3: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, the, my favourite one usually is just uh, how many underpants was Tutankhamun buried with? Mm-hmm. And the answer being? 145 spare pairs. Clearly. Which is just so many. It's just so, <laughs> it's so many or not enough. Because if you're going to live forever in the afterlife, you either need a billion pairs or you need one pair that can magically be clean eternal. But 145, what's that about? I don't understand. So that one always, everyone in the crowd goes, what? Um, The History of Toilet Paper, there's a really lovely advert from the 1930s I like to show, which has on it um, the tagline, now splinter free, um, which is sort of a sudden reminder you go, what do you mean now splinter free? What were they like before? Um, And people are always surprised by ancient bronze age toilet seats from three and a half thousand years ago. And they look like modern toilet seats. Um, they're startled sometimes by how different things could be, but how familiar things could be. You know, um, uh, There's a really lovely thing called a fire clock, which was a medieval Chinese timekeeping device which allowed you to smell the time rather than, rather than look at it. So each hour had a different smell. So it would burn through the incense, and after an hour had passed, a new incense would ignite, and that would smell different. So you could walk into a room and know what time it was by sensing it. And that's a really exciting idea that you can tell the time with other parts of the body. And when you think about it, again, that's that's a really good idea. Why don't we do that now? Um, you know, I was late for this inter- I was early for this interview, wasn't I? I was an hour early because I, I forgot to put my watch back. Um, I could have smelled the time and, and showed up on time. So, yeah, there are things that are, are sort of bankers. There are, you know, jokes that always work. Usually they're sort of toilet jokes, obviously. But there's other things, too, that are just um, surprising, in, in slightly less interesting ways, you know, the, the the history of the tin can, where that comes from. Um, people are always like, really? You go, yeah, it was, you know, invented as part of a competition by Napoleon's France to try and get the army into the field because they were struggling to supply the, the troops with, with food. And it ends up being a British... You know, ends up in in British uh, production instead of French production because the the scientists who sort of pioneered it, they couldn't get the copyright to work in France. So they hopped across the channel and secretly took it to the British instead. So the Napoleonic (laughs) Wars are, you know, in the background, there's this sort of food supply issue going on and the British end up with tin cans. Um, So there's little things like that, which are really fun. And then, you know, the, the history of astronomy or the history of, you know, someone asked me in the book about, you know, who first wanted to go to the moon. And you kind of go, that's a good question, because it's not about who first tried to go to the moon, who first wanted to go to the moon, who first thought about it. Um, and that gets you into ancient Roman writers, uh, Lucian. It gets you into sort of 17th century sort of natural scientists uh, who are sort of starting to think about this. Um, you know, these questions of, of space travel are quintessentially sort of 19th century in our head, but they aren't actually when people... When you look at what people are thinking, they're they're already there in the early modern period. People are already conceptualizing what's it like on the moon, who lives there? Is there air? Can you travel there? how How cold is it? So that's all really interesting as well.
4: Mm. Okay, so you're a fun guy to talk to. you are you are a <laughs> okay. store of fascinating fun trivia, but in the new book that you've written, you are history, you do cover some of the darker sides of history. yeah. How do you do that? How do you approach those those less palatable aspects of the past for 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 a, uh, a, a children's audience?
3: Well, the, I mean, the obvious thing is you you have to stop being funny, you know. So it's a, a book that's designed to be sort of cheerful and and sort of lightly humorous on, on most pages, but you can't be doing jokes about the enslavement. You can't be doing jokes about cruel violence, colonial violence, or anything like that. That's just it's not funny. It doesn't help anything. It's not appropriate. Um, and it doesn't get the tone right. You know, you, if you're going to talk about stuff that's that's cruel and and, and upsetting, well, you have, you have a responsibility to change the tone of voice for it. So even though I do write funny, even though I do funny podcasts, even though I'm always trying to think, well, how can I make this, you know, a bit more jolly? Um, I'm never going to sort of crowbar in a gag for the sake of it if you're talking about something really s- uh, serious and, and sincere. And obviously it's a humorous book in the main part. So it's not. There, there isn't that much um, scary, horrible, big, dark history in there because it it wouldn't feel right tonally. But there are a few, you know, small moments where I sort of pause the the kind of cheerful vibe and say, OK, let's talk about the history of chocolate, which actually in some ways is the history of joy and enjoyment. It's one of my favorite things. I love chocolate. It's sugar. It's sweet. It's, you know, it's a treat. But it's also the history of, of slavery and the, the, you know, the triangular slave trade sort of movement of people's, you know, forcibly removed from West Africa in chains and brutalized and taken to Brazil, and all of that sort of horrific history. You have to give that a little bit of of space to breathe and say, this is how chocolate came to Europe. Um, and, you know, move on from it after a little while and, and reset on the next page. So, yeah, it, you know, my book is not a hard hitting history of these things. It's for seven year olds. But from time to time, it's my responsibility, I think, to pause and say, yeah, this is how some of these delicious foods that we enjoy arrived in European cuisine. uh, And their history uh, is unfortunately sad and tragic, painful. And there is a continuing legacy today. And we're not going to joke about it, but it's important you know about it. And now let's talk about something else.
4: Obviously one of the things with history is that the views change, interpretations yeah. change. I suppose sort of moving away from the sort of the grad grind facts, dear boy, facts thing. <laughs> how, how difficult is it for, for you when you're when you're avowedly trying to produce something which appeals to the to a young audience mm-hmm. to get a sense to them that there isn't is, that history isn't just facts, it is actually changing views and, and and different ideas and that what someone tells you one day might not be. The same as what someone else tells you the next.
3: Thing. Yeah, well, that's the thing about history, isn't it? And and we see this so often in the newspapers, where we see uh, kind of that uh, sort of furious headlines saying historians rewriting facts, and you're going kind to of go, no, no, we're we're not rewriting history. We are doing history. History is to be rewritten constantly. That is the purpose of history. History is a uh, storytelling, and it's, it it comes from the Greek word meaning inquiry. Um, if there was no new history, there'd be no new books. There'd be, you know, We'd all agree on the facts and we'd go home. Um, so that constant churn of ideas, of new interpretations, of new approaches is fundamental to what historians do. That is what history is. History is a verb. It's a doing word. The past is what happened. History is the story of how we understand it. And they are unrelated in that sense. They're completely related in terms of what they are. They're both you know, interested in the past. But history is something that's done now. And the past is over there, and I think for children, um, that children often, I when I encountered them, they do seem really, really good at retaining facts and information. And I was like that as a kid. I, as a kid, I knew all about battleships and planes and you know World War II sort of you know uh, bombers and things like that. Um, that sort of um, not, not not quite top Trumps mentality, but that sort of sense of ordering knowledge. It, it was a very big thing for me as a kid. Um, but actually, what's quite fun to explain to to children and to young people and to and to adults on, on the podcast on, on You're Dead to Me, we have this thing on, on the podcast called The Nuance Window, where our historians get two minutes at the end to say anything they want to say. And often it's a historiographical argument, sort of saying, you probably can't trust half of what you just heard. Or we've got this person wrong. Or the way in which they've been understood in the past was influenced by the society writing the history of the time. But society has since changed. And so I think it's quite fun to build into your books, your podcasts, your projects, whatever you're working on as a historian to admit chances are you might not be right about this. And in ask a historian. There's a couple of pages where I explicitly say I expect to be proved wrong. On this very account, I said exactly the same in my history of celebrity, dead famous. I said, very few people have written about the history of celebrity. I've spent four years researching it. Here's what I think I have found. I expect to be proven wrong because that's how history works. I embrace it. I welcome it. Come on, then tell me, tell me what I've got wrong here because that's exciting. That to me is thrilling. And I think if you can build that into your work, it doesn't become disappointing. And upsetting when a historian comes along, and goes nope, that's not true anymore. It becomes exciting and thrilling to go, oh wow, we've we've overturned something. We've we've started again. We've re-examined. This is progress. This is moving forward. This is a a fresh voice and new approach. So I think there is. It's easy to get wedded to uh, some reality that you're. Determined to say, yeah, you know, it was definitely that. But I think it's quite nice to, to do the opposite and to be open to new approaches.
4: And sort of on that... Whenever we get angry letters from from our <laughs> and we don't get many because most of our, our our listeners and readers are very sensible, reason people. But When we get angry letters, it yeah. tends to be if we've said something which um, is uh, in sort of stark disagreement with something that they were taught in school. Right, something something okay. that it, and it does seem to be you know what. Obviously, it's a formative period when mm-hmm. you're in school. What you're taught, you tend to you tend to believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if if the argument has moved on as you've just described, then then that becomes a bit of a it's quite challenging to be told that's no no longer sure. correct. Your version, that version of reality is, is not what people are talking about now. Do you find that you often, when you're... Because you're talking to both adults and children. Yeah. Do you find that there is a sort of a, an ongoing conversation between adults and children about what they're... The different interpretation of what they're being told?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We find that... Um generally the dynamic is that the child is more up to date on their scholarship than the adult. (laughs) Uh, The child has read something quite recently or they've seen a Horrible Histories episode or they've uh, heard a podcast or they, they, they saw a video game or something and they have got a new fresh take on it and they're Maybe their teacher or a parent or a grandparent has sort of gone, no, that's not true, and the child's gone. Uh, I think I find it is true, <laughs> and it's quite interesting to see this dynamic power shift inverted because normally the grown-ups impart the wisdom and knowledge to the child, and the child is meant to then go. Oh, now I know about this subject, but because we are seeing this this really exciting um, growth in popular culture that caters to historical curiosity, and it's across all the different platforms, you know, it's on TikTok, it's on podcasts, it's on YouTube, it's on, it's in video games, you know, video games are probably the most successful, most globally powerful delivery mechanism for historical thinking right now. Doesn't mean they're accurate, doesn't mean they are entirely helpful. Sometimes they're great, but they are undoubtedly more powerful, more influential than most movies now. It it certainly used to be TV was the place you'd go. You know, I started my career in TV because that was the place you went to to influence the most number of people. But now a podcast gets more listeners than a TV documentary. And a movie probably, unless it's on Netflix and it's seen by 80 million people, probably isn't seen by as many people as play a video game. So children are increasingly getting their ideas of the past from uh, places you might call untypical, not traditional, not traditional um, platforms. And we as public historians have to respond to that. We've got to be able to engage with it. We've got to play the games, figure out what they're saying, um, be able to respond. Um, and we've got to welcome it and embrace it. But yeah, you're as a person growing up, stuff you were told when you were 10 will undoubtedly be proven wrong or at least challenged. That is how life works. And Uh, It's called The Half-Life of Facts. It's it's quite a nice, it's a well-known thing in the medical community that, you know, um, junior doctors will go through their life sort of gradually having the stuff they've taught at med school removed from their education because new technology, new advances, new knowledge comes forward. And by the end of your medical career, Things have changed since the start of it. That is standard in science. It's standard in history.
4: We've been talking for a while, so we'd better wrap up. There's just a couple of things I wanted to finish off. So, obviously, with, with your with your new book, you've you've chosen a good topic. You've chosen the, the <laughs> subjects that you know that, that children are excited about, yeah. and, and you know that's going to work. So that's very sensible, very very good Thank idea. Thank you. You also <laughs> mentioned that maybe stuff like Weimar Germany is a bit is a bit more challenging. So, what what are the subjects in your experience that just Uh, stop children dead, just make them, you know, they are not (laughs) interested. What are the most difficult topics to get
3: children interested in? Well, uh, you can make any subject interesting, but obviously some are easier than others. Weimar of Germany is a really interesting subject, as we all know, if you understand what hyperinflation is and uh, a child doesn't get that instinctively but if you say okay you leave the the house in the morning and you've got 10 pounds but by the time you get to the shop that's devalued that that can make sense so you have to sort of build that out as a kind of analogous like imagine you know every passing hour your the pocket money you've saved up has lost its value so by the end of the day you can't even buy a penny suite anymore that can be explained quite simply. But there are some subjects that are just very, very hard and dreary and, and difficult, and they're important, but they're not easy. And so they, they can be, politics is often quite difficult. You know, it's often hard to get children to understand uh, constitutional history. Um, you know, we've not had a huge amount of success. I mean, on Horrible Histories we couldn't do the Holocaust, because we were a comedy show, and it just wasn't appropriate. And And sometimes I'd sit there thinking, this is a this is a mistake of ours not to cover it because it's so important. But then as soon as you try, it just feels horribly inappropriate and and tactless. And, you know, I lost family in the Holocaust. I, you know, it, it's a really, it's, it's huge, the global monumental event, which, of course, we're seeing Holocaust denialism on the rise again. And you kind of think oh, we should be doing this, but Horrible Histories is a comedy sketch show. It just wasn't the place for it. So some subjects just don't feel appropriate to the platform or the project. You know, if it's a book, if it's a podcast, if it's video games, some things just aren't quite right. But I think politics politics can be hard. Um, I think diplomacy can be quite hard. It's quite hard to explain the history of diplomacy to children. But, you know, Horrible Histories, we we did it as a sort of very silly, ridiculous, you know, the course was the First World War sketch where we had all sorts of sort of generals you know around a room sort of saying my friend did this and he did that to that turn and he so i'm standing in to defend him but he's standing in to you know and you can sort of make a farce of it but it's hard to explain these high level things to someone who's 7 or 8 years old because it's just not part of their world they don't think like that that's not interesting to them so some histories will have to wait but that's why i would always make the case to say if you can get a child interested in the concept of history it doesn't matter if they're not learning about Weimar Germany, or if they're not, if they haven't started yet on on you know the causes of the, of the British civil wars, if you can get them interested in just history as a concept and welcome them in and say, look, this is for you. This is a subject that you will grow up with and can be something you enjoy for the rest of your life. You know, there are many people out there who do chemistry at GCSE and then they stop it and they never do it again in their life. Not once. But history, you can do it for the rest of your life. You can do it for, you know, you can just read a book once a week. You can just watch a documentary, listen to a podcast. It should be a subject that every person can engage with at least once a week. But if you lose them at that age, then chances are they won't. So I would much rather make the case for saying, all right, if this is difficult, we'll leave it a little bit for now. Let's work on something that you can enjoy. Once you get the the bug for it, the passion for it, then you can slowly build up and say, right, okay, now we're going to do the Corn Laws, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, no one really enjoys other than sort of uh, hardcore historians. Oh,
4: hang on, we're going to get a load of letters <laughs> now
3: about the Corn Laws. They're really, I, I find them interesting. And in the current political climate, you you quite quickly kind of go, oh, that's interesting. The idea of pushing through something that immediately sort of everyone goes, whoa, hang on. No, that we're not standing for that. That's interesting. But it's it's such an arcane Concept for someone that age. So if you start with something familiar to them, their own life, their own experiences, what they do for breakfast, what they're wearing, what are their friends wearing? You know, where is that globe on? The, where's the map on the wall come from? Who invented that map? You know, because that's not accurate. That map, the Mercator map, isn't accurate. So why isn't it accurate? All these little things can make sense to them and gradually you can build out from there. But I think if you start too soon on the heavy stuff, I'm sure there are people who disagree with me. But if you start too soon, I think you end up with people falling out of love with history too young and they take them 30 years to come back to it. And by that time, you've, you've lost three decades of passionate learning.
4: Yeah, well, on that topic, let's let's finish with um, any ideas you've got to to really fix the the passion for history. So, so I've I've, I've failed. I've got teenage children. I've got three girls, and uh, when they were uh, two years old, mm. um, I, I wrote a book about the hundred places to visit in Britain and uh, took them all around British historical yeah. sites. I have read your had, book. Yeah. Had a lovely time. It was great. Now they will not. Go anywhere near a castle for me, love of money. I, so I've ruined history for them. I hope you haven't done the same with, with your children. Um, so any any tips to to get children interested in history? Well,
3: my daughter's only three, so I haven't yet uh, had the, the the sort of devastating blow to the ego when she rejects uh, daddy's job. But um, I think there is no one true sort of right you know right answer here, I, and I don't claim to have great expertise. I, I've found a way that works for me, but I think children respond to the familiar and the, and the and the thing that you know makes sense to them but at the same time the excitement of the of the oddity of it so as i said earlier it's that push pull factor of the past was different and yet they were just like us those two oppositional things i i would always say leverage those those dynamics because that is where the kind of curiosity is found but i think making making the kind of the reality of their life part of the story. So, yes, you can go for the big personalities. You can you can zero in on Henry VIII and his sort of uh, homicidal tendencies. Um, but I would also argue, you know, local history. Start in your street, look at the houses, get, go to your local history centre, your local archive, get a map out and go, right, this is what your house looked like in 1865. Or it wasn't there yet, actually, it hadn't been built yet. Why wasn't it built yet? Because this was all arable land. What were they growing? Well, they were growing this. And... You can I think you can start those journeys, but someone in their teens maybe just isn't connecting to castles because, uh, you know, at that age, I wasn't connecting to castles and I'm a professional historian. At that age, I was into music and football and playing guitar and, and you know, I was I was drawn to stuff that teenage boys like. Um, and so but if someone had said to me, oh, well, the history of music's really interesting. You know, and actually, you like heavy metal. Well, Beethoven was heavy metal and he was kind of fascinating. Let's go look at, you know, I might have been sort of, you know, taken down that path more easily. The history of football is really, really interesting. I only know that now. Um, so I, I would always say start with a passion and build out from it. So whatever that that young person cares about, whether it's fashion or gaming or food or shoes, launch from that and then see if you can get them interested in in history. And then if you can hook them into just history in general, then you've got your, uh, what did we say early on? Ice, Ice pick, ice pick and crampons. Yeah, that. Isaac's Isaac's thanks.
4: <laughs> I think you need to do something on the history of mountaineering. You're clearly not up on it. Uh,
3: clearly, we're not. I'll go talk to Vanessa Heggie. She's an expert on that, and we'll uh, we'll get her on the podcast maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, brilliant, Greg. Thanks very much. Is there anything that we we should any like closing comments that we uh, that I should have uh, afforded you the chance to say? Any any things that you that, that you haven't been asked that I should have asked
3: you? Oh, well, that's a good question, Goodness me. Uh, do you always do that? Yeah, that... I try to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I suppose. The one thing that I would always stress that I think is a really powerful thing is I'm trying in my career, wherever possible, not to be the voice of expertise, but always to try and be um, lifting up other historians' voices as well. That's why the podcast we have an expert on every week. It's not just me with briefing notes. And that's why when I write books, even though I write them and my name's on the front uh, I'm showing that manuscript to 15, 16 historians who've got different specialities in different periods, and I'm taking notes and I'm guidance and I'm speaking to them and I'm, you know, even on Ask a Historian, I phoned up historians and spent an hour chatting to them on Zoom saying, Have I got this right? Oh, I haven't got this right. Okay, what should I need to read? That's that to me is a fundamental part of of public history that doesn't doesn't get talked about that much. Is I think good public history actually isn't one person saying, and here's the answer. It's um, being part of a community. So even when you hear me on the radio or read my books or whatever, actually what you're hearing are sometimes me trying to channel what other people's scholarship is and, and you know, try and credit it when I can. In, in children's books, you can't have footnotes. They won't let you. But in Ask a Historian and Dead Famous and so on, I'm always trying to make sure that people have a a place to go after reading the book, to go and read other historians' work as well, because that's what's so important, I think, is it's the community of historians. And that's something I would always stress. is It's not just me. I'm basically just a sort of middleman.
0: That was Greg Jenner. His book, You Are History, is out now published by Walker Books. Greg's other recent book, this time for adults, is Ask a Historian, which has recently been released in paperback. And you can find You're Dead to Me on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.